Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'd like to invite you to open your Bible and join me for this time in the Word. You can visit us online at my website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you'd like to receive our e-letter, which we usually send out two or three times a week, just click on the subscribe link and add your email address there. And if you have comments or questions about this program or about the Christian life and faith in general, send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. We'd love to hear from you. So now we come back to the main topic for this program, uh, which is the teaching of our millennialism. And my... uh, plan is to wrap up our, our series on amillennialism with this program. So I'm going to begin by making a few more introductory remarks. Uh, then I need to say a little bit more about the relationship between Israel and the church because that's a, a big matter uh, in this whole consideration uh, between amillennialism and premillennialism. And then finally we're going to get to Revelation 20. So that's the, the basic layout for this program and I'm, I'm pretty sure we should be able to do that. So I want to begin by just considering, again, why does this matter? And as we've said before, it, it basically it just takes the Bible away from Christians. That's the first problem with our millennialism. There's so many promises that can't be fulfilled uh, in the millennial scheme because you don't have that thousand-year period of Christ reigning on the earth through the nation of Israel. So all the Old Testament promises to Israel are basically null and void. They, they would say, the, the amillennialists would say, no, they're being fulfilled in the church. That does not fulfill the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel. That's their theory. But when you look at those promises, they were made to the nation of Israel and they need to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. That David was going to have someone sitting on his throne, his son sitting on his throne forever and ever. That uh, Israel would be ruling over the nations. That has to be fulfilled to the people to whom that promise was made, and that's the nation of Israel. So regardless of how you try to frame it, the amillennial teaching is saying God has broken his promises. He's not keeping his promises. So so that's one aspect uh, in which uh, amillennialism takes the Bible away from Christians. The other aspect is you, you just can't believe so much prophecy in general, like the book of Revelation. Now, we said last time, we stressed that, that uh, you know, the, the early people who rejected the premillennial view of the church in the, in the early history of the church, they just said Revelation is not part of the Bible. And they were honest about it. They were upfront about what they were doing. Because they felt as long as Revelation is included in the Bible, you have to take that a premillennial view of the Lord's return. Not, they, that's not what they called it at that time, but it was called chiliasm. But, uh, but as long as Revelation is in the Bible, you have to take that view. So they just said, no, it's not a part of the Bible. It's not a part of the canon. The, the Greek Orthodox Church didn't accept it until the late Middle Ages, as we mentioned last week. Uh, today, the amillennialists, they're not as forthright. They write it out of the Bible by saying it's something spiritual. Uh, they claim they believe it, but they really don't. And it's just not as honest. But the fact is they're still getting rid of so much of the book of Revelation, in particular, uh, Revelation chapter 20, by spiritualizing it. And, and so that's the first problem with this evil teaching. It really takes the Bible away from the believers in Christ. Uh, Secondly, it takes away the purpose of the Christian life. What is God doing on the earth today? He's recovering the earth and his authority to reign over the earth through the church in a hidden, mysterious way by those believers who who are willing to live their lives under the authority of Christ. 
so that he can establish his kingdom on the earth through them in a hidden way so that eventually he can come back and establish his kingdom on the earth in the next age through the nation of Israel in an open and manifest way. That's our calling. That's our commitment from the Lord today. But if you take the amillennial view that there's not going to be a uh, millennial reign of Christ on the earth, then you just take away that purpose uh, uh, of the church. There's, there's no purpose anymore. We're just basically waiting for the Lord to come back and we're going to go to heaven. Uh, Third, it takes away the hope of the Christian life because it makes the Lord's return so remote. If you say there's not going to be a reign of Christ on the earth for this earth for a thousand years, it's going to be something in a new heaven and a new earth, or some believers say you, you go to heaven, you make that Lord's return so remote, you just it just ceases to have its impact on the believers who should be looking for the Lord's return to this present earth. It makes his return so much more immediate. Uh, and because you take away that hope, you take away the motive for the Christian life. You, you just feel, well, well, what's the point? If I don't have a, a, a purpose, I don't have a hope, then what's my motive for living the Christian life? It's all gone for following Christ in a, in a serious way today. And you can, you can make something up. Well, we need to be faithful. He died for our sins. You know, praise the Lord for that. Yeah, for sure we do. But there, beyond that, there is an additional hope, additional motive that we have for living the Christian life, which relates to the coming kingdom of Christ on the earth. But all that gets taken away uh, by the amillennial teaching. Uh, that's what makes it so destructive. So then the next question is, well, who am I really speaking this to? I had to consider that. You know, what, what's the audience that I'm hoping to reach with this? And I, I think that there's two main ones. First, as a group, I'm, I'm probably not trying to reach for the most part. And that's the, the, the groups within Christianity that have basically always held to the amillennial system. That's the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, all the Orthodox churches, I should say, and uh, mainline Christianity. They've, they've always been amillennial, and uh, for sure that's not going to change. But you have to be just very candid and say these uh, groups, the Bible is not their authority. It's just not their authority. Uh, you know, some of them admit that openly, like the Catholic Church. Um, you know, they they say they have these three sources of authority, but basically, it's it's up to the Pope to interpret the Bible. So it's not he's their authority, not the Bible. Uh, and then uh, with the Orthodox and the mainline denominations, this just stopped being their authority a long time ago. Now I know there's people, they to some extent they believe the Bible. I'm not saying that. I know they believe the Bible to some extent, and they care about the Bible. But that's a different matter from taking the Bible as your unique authority. You know, uh, my, I'm just offhand, I think I have the reference right. Jeremiah 8, verse 20 uh, says, To the word and to the testimony, if they don't agree with this, there is no dawn in them. It is really so. No dawn in them. Uh, that should be our unique authority, is the scripture we look at. Do these things match up with the scripture, what we're saying? But those groups really don't, even if they believe the Bible to some extent and honor the Bible to some extent, they don't take that approach, so you can't really speak to them. But there are uh, Christians today, of course, who do take the Bible as their authority, or who at least believe they're taking the Bible as their authority, and that's, of course, um, among the fundamental and evangelical Christians. Uh, and so I'm speaking to them uh, to show those who do take the premillennial view and who may be tempted to consider the amillennial view to help them realize, no, it is not biblical. It is absolutely not a biblical 
view of the Lord's end times, of the Lord's return and of the end times, uh, to help them understand that. But there's another uh, shade of Christian, so to speak, in that uh, uh, among the Bible-believing Christians, and that's the believers who are in the uh, amillennial churches, uh, which do somewhat take the Bible as their authority. And they just feel this is, this is what they've been taught, it's all they know, and they feel this is the biblical teaching. So I'm trying to help them realize that no, this is not uh, what the Bible teaches. Here is why it's not what the Bible teaches. And its source is not from the Bible, as we said in last week. Uh, its source comes from, from some other things. It comes from pagan Greek philosophy, and it comes from this desire to settle down in the world. Really, that's the two sources of this teaching. Because many people in these, these kinds of congregations do think they're taking the Bible as their authority just because that's what they've always been taught. So, uh, again, that's my other audience among the Bible-believing Christians to help, is to help these people realize the amillennial teaching simply is not biblical. And hopefully they'll respond to that and, and hear what we have to say. Now, the last point I want to cover in this segment of the program has to do between the relationship between Israel and the church. Because it's a central tenet of amillennialism, a core tenet of that system, to say that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. They absolutely have to say that, because otherwise they just have to admit outright that God didn't keep the promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and I've already, I've already touched on this uh, a little bit earlier. God made the promises to Israel. He has to fulfill those promises to Israel, not to somebody else. And so it really makes no sense to say this. But they have to say it uh, because otherwise, the only other alternative is to say, well, God just uh, didn't keep his promises and he switched over to the church. Uh, so in their system, they have this core, core tenet that the church has replaced Israel. And they like uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16 they say the church is the Israel of God, which even, even that verse doesn't quite say that. It's saying those who walk according to the principle of the new creation are the Israel of God. It doesn't say the church there. That's not a small difference, uh, first of all. But as I say, they have to say it. And there are some verses in the New Testament that indicate where Abraham's seed uh, and some other things too along those lines that indicate that in a sense the church is the continuation of Israel. In a sense. Okay, so you have to understand what sense is the Bible speaking of when it says that. And we mentioned, uh, I think it was a couple of uh, programs ago, you, to understand this properly, you have to discern the difference between God's program for Israel and God's purpose for Israel. And in terms of the purpose for Israel, you can say the church is continuing the work God was doing in Israel. Because the purpose never changes. It, it, it didn't start with Israel. It goes all the way back actually to, to the creation of Adam and Eve. God wants man to express him and to rule the earth on his behalf and to bring man into relationship with himself. That is God's purpose. That's his uh, eternal purpose. He wants man to be his expression, to rule for him and to be in relationship with him. That's what's on his heart. It didn't start with Israel. That started with Adam. So it, it, after Adam fell, eventually that purpose came to Abraham. God called Abraham out of the nations in Genesis chapter 12 and uh, uh, to fulfill that purpose. 
And then, of course, uh, Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. And yes, that purpose was with, Israel, was with Israel in the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament. But Israel eventually also fell uh, and turned into idolatry. And, of course, they rejected the Lord as the Savior. And so for the time being, God has set them aside. But he's continuing to work out that purpose. Only now, today, he's doing it in the church. Everything with Israel is, is open and manifest on the earth. Everything with the church is hidden and mysterious. Because Jesus was rejected, he couldn't fulfill the purpose himself through Israel. But when he, in resurrection, he told the uh, uh, disciples in John chapter 20, he says to them, as the Father sent me, I send you, right, to try to work out that purpose on the earth in the church age. So in that sense, the church today is continuing uh, God's purpose with Israel. But in terms of the program, that's not being continued by the church. That was over when the, when the Jews rejected Jesus as their Savior. God's program for them in terms of uh, the law and the Old Testament uh, arrangements, the Old Testament dispensation was over. That was terminated. And he began something completely new with the church. So in terms of the purpose uh, for Israel, yes, you can say the church is continuing Israel. In terms of the program, no, you can't say that. And that program does include the promises God made to Israel. Those are still going to be fulfilled. Those were never terminated. But the program, the old covenant, the law, the circumcision, that was all terminated. But eventually Israel, Israel will be brought back in, and then God will fulfill the program that he had in the millennium with the nation of Israel and all the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled to the nation of Israel and to David and his descendants during the millennium. So, okay, if, if that's the case, if, there's, if you have a difference between the program in Israel, for Israel, and the purpose for Israel, do you see that distinction in the New Testament in terms of its relationship with the church? And the answer is yes, you do. There's two chapters in the New Testament that deal specifically with the relationship between Israel and the church. One of these chapters deals with that relationship in terms of God's purpose for Israel. And the other deals with it from the standpoint of God's program for Israel and his program for the church. So maybe you want to think about what those two chapters are. Uh, but I'll just tell you right right now, those two chapters are Romans chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 2. Romans 11 and Ephesians 2. Romans 11 deals with that relationship between Israel and the church from the standpoint of God's purpose. Ephesians 2 deals with that same relationship, but with the stand, from the standpoint of God's program, respectively, for Israel and for the church. And so just to look at uh, these chapters briefly, in Romans chapter 11, that's where you see the Apostle Paul considering this relationship from the standpoint of God's purpose. And in that chapter, that's the chapter where he likens Israel to a tree. And we are the Gentiles, uh, because of unbelief, the Jews were broken off, and we as the Gentiles have been grafted in. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse uh, 16 now, if the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are also. Now, the root there, that refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's calling them. They're the root of the nation of Israel. 
He goes on, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and became a fellow partaker of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember, it is not you who bear the root, but the root you. So here he's saying the purpose that God uh, gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that eventually came to Israel, we have been grafted into that purpose. So we're a part of that now. What he, what he be, uh, began actually with Adam and Eve, as I said, and then uh, continued with the calling of Abraham, uh, and then through Israel, we have been grafted into that purpose. The root of that, he's saying here, is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So yes, in that sense, we are a part of the work God was doing with the nation of Israel. But what you notice here, there's nothing in here about God's Old Testament program for Israel. There's nothing about the law. There's nothing about circumcision, nothing about the temple worship, nothing like that. Because that is not what this, pro, this chapter is on. It has to do with God's purpose, not on God's program. So when we say that the church is continuing the work that uh, God was doing in Israel, you can only say that in relation to his eternal purpose. You can't say that in relation to the program. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, that's where you see the program. Okay, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, 11. Therefore remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh, those who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So now you see the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, especially in the matter of circumcision. There's a big divide. So now it's dealing with the program between Israel and uh, the church and how these two programs differ. differ. That you were at that time, apart from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Because God's work at that time was with Israel, not with the Gentiles. We were cut off from that. We were strangers to everything that God was doing. So here the emphasis is absolutely on the program, not on the purpose. But then he goes on, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have become near in the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, the enmity, abolishing in his flesh the law of the commandments and ordinances, that he might create the two in himself into one new man, so making peace. So this is dealing with the program for Israel and the program for the church. And what he says here, it's not that we were brought into Israel. We're not brought into Israel in terms of the program. He's saying that was abolished. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, the enmity, abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances. He abolished that whole program. It's over now. It's gone forever. In terms of that old covenant relationship and what it meant to be um, uh, a child of Israel, one of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, that's gone forever. By the death of Christ on the cross, it's over. Instead, what he did is he brought us together both the Jew and the Gentile, to be the one new man, right? Um, he himself might create, he might create the two in himself into one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, having slain the enmity by it. So in that sense, you absolutely cannot say that the church is a continuation of Israel because Israel, in terms of its program, is over. There's something new God has begun, and that is the church. And I will add here, many Christians are completely unaware about this aspect of the church, 
We're familiar with the church as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, as the temple of God, these different aspects of the church that you see in Ephesians. Um, But not many see the church here as the one new man. The old man, of course, had to do with Adam. But God called us out of the old man, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile, and brought us into this one new man together to be the church. It's something completely new that never existed before. And Paul says later on in Ephesians, uh, uh, this is this has uh, never been revealed in ages past. It's something completely new. Uh, it was never revealed in the Old Testament. Now you can look back on the Old Testament and see the types of the church. You can do that. But if you only had the Old Testament, you would never know there was such a thing in God's heart as to have the church as the body of Christ, as this one new man. And of, but of course, not all Jews are going to believe in Christ. And so... So today, what you have on the earth, according to the New Testament, are three classes of people, according to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 32, right? Uh, there's the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God, these three classes. You have the Jews, you have the Gentiles, and then you have those who have been called out of the Jews and called out of the Gentiles to be the church, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God. Uh, the bride of Christ, the one new man. That's something completely new. And so in that sense, no, it's completely wrong to say that the church is continuing uh, Israel or has anything to do with the promises God made to Israel, uh, except in an indirect way. So once you understand that, then we should be clear, the church is absolutely not the continuation of Israel in terms of God's program. Yes, you can say it in terms of the purpose, but not in terms of the program and not in terms of the promises God made to Israel. Those have to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel, and that can only happen during the 1,000-year reign of Christ, which we call the millennium. So that's going to do it for this um, half of the program. We'll take a little break and then uh, come back and finally get into the matter of Revelation chapter 20. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, If you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So now we finally come to Revelation chapter 20, which is really the heart of the whole matter because it is the only chapter in the Bible that explicitly speaks of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, the premillennialists we would say there's so many other chapters, so many other portions of the Bible, rather, that require the millennium in order to be fulfilled. All the promises to Israel, for example, and the promises to the overcomers in Revelation. You have to have the reign of Christ on the earth for those promises to be fulfilled. But Revelation 20 is the only chapter that explicitly mentions the 1,000-year reign of Christ with his saints on the earth. So it's really the heart of the matter. The question is, do you take this Uh, chapter in a literal way, or do you take it as something symbolic? 
So I'm going to start, uh, and I'm just going to read this chapter, but not the whole chapter. It's verses 1 to 10 that really speak of the millennium. The last part of the chapter, verses 11 through 15, deal with the great white throne judgment. So I'm just going to read through that first of all. So I encourage you to uh, open your Bible and to read along as I'm reading it. And I'm reading from the recovery version of the New Testament, which was the translation done by Witness Lee and his co-workers, uh, which is quite a literal translation. So I'll just uh, go through it. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is this devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be loosed for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and of those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. Their number is like that of the sand of the sea. And they went up on the earth, and they went up upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where also the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's that's the portion that's in question, because uh, the premillennialists take it simply as it's written, as a literal account of what is going to happen at the end of this age. Whereas the amillennialists say, no, no, it's it's spiritual, it's not actually talking about things that are going to happen. It's all a symbolic language. So let's consider this for a minute. I mean, is there any basis for saying that the language here is symbolic? Well, it's right to say, you know, Revelation is a book of signs. Okay, that's that's in the first verse of Revelation. That's an important verse to, to keep in mind when you're studying the book of Revelation. Again, this is the recovery version. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his slaves the things that must quickly take place. And he made it known by signs, sending it by his angel to his slave, John. And other versions there, they would uh, say he signified it, uh, making it known, sending it by his angel to his slave, John. So he, he made it known by signs or he signified it. So revelation is a book that contains many signs. Well, what is a sign in the New Testament? In the New Testament, a sign is almost always something real that has a spiritual significance. And if you have any question about that, I encourage you to just get a concordance and look up the word sign in the New Testament. It's always, always, always talking about something real, but it has a spiritual significance. When Jesus changed the water into wine, uh, John tells us in John chapter 2, this was the first of the signs that Jesus did. It doesn't mean that he didn't really change the water into wine. He did. 
But there was a spiritual significance there. That's what John wants us to know. It wasn't just a miracle. That miracle, that wonder that Jesus did, had a spiritual significance. And so that changing of the water into wine was a sign. But it was something real. And all through the New Testament, you see this. Whenever it's talking about a sign, it's something that's real that has a spiritual significance. Um, One of the best examples from the Old Testament is the prophet Jonah. That's uh, Luke 11.30. It says, Jonah became a sign to the um, men of that generation. That doesn't mean Jonah wasn't real. It wasn't an actual thing that happened. According to the Lord Jesus, according to the Bible, that actually happened. But it became something with this spiritual significance. And of course, the way Jesus applies that in the New Testament is that it's a picture of his death and resurrection. It is a picture, but it actually happened. Okay, so that's the meaning of sign in the New Testament. Uh, The only time you have sign used in a slightly different way is in Revelation chapter 12. That's with, at the beginning of chapter 12, it talks about, uh, in verses 1 and 3, it says, And a great sign was seen in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon underneath her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay, that's a sign. And here when the Bible speaks of a sign, it's using it somewhat as a symbol in a symbolic way. But it's still symbolizing or signifying something real, which is namely the totality of God's people all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a real thing. And the sign that it gives us is closely related to the thing that it is signifying or symbolizing in this instance. And then in verse uh, verse 3, another sign was seen in heaven and behold, there was a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. So again, this is another sign where you see uh, that word used in a somewhat symbolic way. Satan is not actually a dragon. Right? And in verse 9, of course, it tells us the sign here, here it defines it. It says specifically that this sign refers to Satan. But it's still close, the symbol or the sign is closely related to the thing it is signifying. And that thing is something very real. So it's still, even though here in these instances you could say the word sign is used in a somewhat symbolic way, The symbols here are closely related to the things they are signifying. A symbol isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily have an intrinsic relationship to whatever it's uh, representing. You know, for example, if you're uh, playing a little league, playing a sandlot game of uh, football, and you say, okay, Joey, you're this bottle cap here, you go here. You know, the bottle cap doesn't bear any relation to Joey in that case. So a symbol doesn't have to have a, a real relationship to the thing it is symbolizing. A sign does in the New Testament. And here again, you see this principle. There's a close relationship. Even though the term sign here is used in a somewhat symbolic way, it still bears a close relationship to the thing that is being signified. So we should not have the feeling that we can just wildly interpret the things that we see in the book of Revelation and fill them with whatever meaning we want to fill them with. That We simply don't have the ground to do that. Even in these instances where there's a somewhat symbolic sense uh, of a sign, it's this, this, the symbol still closely relates to the thing that it is symbolizing. So that's the first uh, principle we need to understand when we're looking at, at, at Revelation chapter 20. Do we have any license in the New Testament for thinking we can just wildly interpret these things in the way that we want to? And the answer is clearly no. The second thing I would point out, uh, and my impression is a lot of uh, believers may not have any sense of this, 
is that many of the things that are spoken of in the book of Revelation, even though in, they're in the spiritual realm, are cr- quite real. They're not, uh, they're not just symbols. Uh, and, you know, you have, for example, the seven seals, the seven uh, trumpets, and the seven bowls. And I sent out uh, a note recently uh, on this, with that very title, The Seals, the Trumpets, and the Bowls, that talks about this matter. Are these things real or are they just uh, just symbols? Well, if you look at the matter of trumpets in the Bible, it's very clear. These things exist in the spiritual realm and sometimes they break into even the physical realm. When the children of Israel were gathered uh, to Mount Sinai in the desert, there was a long trumpet blast from the mountain. When God came down to the mountain, there was a trumpet blast. Paul says in the uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.52, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus will descend from heaven with the trumpet of God. So these are the trumpet is a real thing that exists in the spiritual realm. And for sure, if the trumpets are real, then also the seals and the bowls are real things that exist in the spiritual realm. And in fact, when you look at uh, the book of Hebrews, what we find out is, there is an actual temple that exists in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm where God is, and that the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple that existed on the earth in the Old Testament times were a picture of the real temple that exists in heaven today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ having come as a high priest of the good things that have come into being through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered once for all into the Holy of Holies, obtaining an eternal redemption. So after his death and resurrection, Christ entered into the Holy of Holies in this temple, in the heavens, where he obtained an eternal redemption, according to uh, the writer of Hebrews. So these are real things that exist in the heavens. Uh, A number of times in the book of Revelation, it talks about the temple or the tabernacle, which is in heaven. And so we shouldn't think that the the New Testament or that the book of Revelation is simply speaking of things that don't really exist. No, these are real things. They really exist. And and I have to mention, after I uh, finished that note on the the, uh, seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, I had a very deep feeling about how real God's heavenly administration is. And as believers in Christ, we should have a feeling an appreciation. God has a genuine, a real administration that he is carrying out from heaven on the earth today. And I think if we appreciate that these are real things that exist in the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm, even though we don't see them, it will give us more of an appreciation for that. So again, there simply is no basis in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, for saying that the things that are in Revelation are just symbols And we can wildly interpret them in any way that we want. These are real things. They have real significance. uh, And they do have a spiritual significance, but they're real things. And so we always have to keep the principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Such a key point. But I'll add this. You know, the the phrase that uh, came to me today as I was preparing was, you know, God will give you enough rope to hang yourself if I may use that phrase, uh, borrowing it, of course, from Comrade Lennon. Uh, 
God will give you enough rope to hang yourself if that's what you want to do with the scripture. What I mean by that is a lot of times things are not directly spelled out. There's no verse in in the New Testament that says uh, the millennium is an actual thing that's going to be 1,000 year long and it's going to happen after Christ returns. You have to put things together to understand this. And so if you want a wild interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, because for whatever reason it fits your, your, your philosophy, you can have that interpretation because there's not a direct and explicit contradiction of it in the New Testament. But if you're interpreting scripture with the scripture, really taking scripture as your authority, you won't accept that amillennial view. You're going to realize that uh, Revelation 20 does need to be taken in a literal way. Recently, I, I came across a saying uh, that I think is pretty well known about how to come to the scriptures. And it's trite, but it's, it is true. And I, I appreciated it. Uh, and it was simply this. If the plain sense makes good sense, then don't seek for any other sense. Otherwise, you're going to come up with nonsense. And I really appreciated that because basically that's what the amillennial uh, teachers of the Bible have done. They've rejected the plain sense of the scriptures, which makes good sense in the context of Revelation. And eventually what they produce is just a bunch of nonsense. Sorry to say that's all it is. But anyway, having said all that, around 400 AD, uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, did set forth, he was the first to set forth, the amillennial view of Revelation 20, which says, uh, this is purely symbolic. It's uh, You can't take it in a literal way. Uh, you have to understand this is something spiritual. And he had some reasons for doing that. Uh, one that we've covered pretty much uh, before, but it bears repeating, is he was, uh, along with some others who rejected the premillennial view, he was very deeply influenced by pagan Greek philosophy. That's a simple fact. It's a statement of fact. And according to that philosophy, everything that exists in the material realm is evil. The material realm itself is inherently evil. So God could not possibly want to establish his kingdom within the material realm. He was very much influenced by that view. And so I would say, if, you know, if you're listening to this and you uh, hold to the Reformed theology, I know the statement that uh, you know, sola scriptura, everything has to be according to the authority of scripture. That's a very big deal with you guys, which is very good. But I'm sorry to have to tell you that your uh, view of the end times, the amillennial view, is absolutely not sola scriptura. As I said in the last program, it's scriptura plus pagan Greek philosophy. That's the only way you can arrive at the amillennial view. That's just a statement of fact. And if the sola scriptura really matters to you, you really need to reconsider uh, your view of the end times and that amillennial view and whether that's valid or not. Uh, and there were other reasons as well why uh, Augustine came to this view. One of them had to do, uh, as I understand it, with his feeling that some of those who held to the premillennial view, which at that time was called Kiliasm, looked at the millennium in a very, very crassly materialistic way. It was kind of like an ancient version of the prosperity gospel. I mean, you just use that time to you know, live it up, basically, in a, in a very fleshly way, almost make it an occasion for the flesh. And again, I don't know too much about that, but that seems to have been Augustine's feeling. And he was repulsed by that, and that was another reason why he wanted to say that the uh, uh, millennium must be something spiritual, not something physical. 
uh, and, and there are other reasons as well, but those were a couple of the main ones. And I want to say too, uh, to be fair to Augustine, I, I, if you've been listening to this program, you know I very much appreciate the writings of G.H. Pember. And as I was preparing uh, today uh, for this program, I was reminded uh, of a statement I read in Pember's writings where he really appreciated Augustine. And I couldn't find it, unfortunately. If I do, I'll, I'll include it in the program notes later. But uh, he said something along the lines of that he felt Augustine was just about the most remarkable servant that the Lord ever had. I mean, he really appreciated Augustine. Uh, he didn't expand on that. Now, Pember was quite a classical scholar. We know very little about him, but we do know that's, uh, he, uh, that's what he studied. And uh, he studied the classics when he was in, and was highly educated before he became a believer. That's one reason why his writings on ancient history are so uh, worthwhile. So he really appreciated Augustine, even though he himself, Pember, was strongly premillennial, of course, and Augustine was the founder of the amillennial school. He still had a lot of appreciation for Augustine. So I just wanted to make that clear uh, before, I, before I go on, because uh, you know, certainly uh, you, you can't appreciate Augustine's view of Revelation 20 if you take a literal view of the scriptures. So one of the key points that he taught regarding Revelation 20 has to do with the thousand years itself. He, he set forth a view, we are already in the millennium. It's not something for the future. It's something that we're already in today because the church is already reigning with Christ. Well, you can say, yes, are the believers reigning with Christ in a spiritual sense? Yes. But for saying that we are reigning and have already entered into the millennium, there simply is no basis for that statement anywhere in the scripture. You're just making that up out of whole cloth. But that's what Augustine did. He had no basis for that statement. But that is the view that has predominated in so many sections of the church ever since. Well, is there any reason for thinking that the 1,000 years here is not a literal 1,000-year period? Let's just consider that for a minute. And I have to say, I am not aware of a number anywhere in Revelation that should not be taken in a literal sense. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm not aware of something, and if you think you, you know of any, please let me know. I'd like to know that. Um, but I have not been able to find any. It talks about the seven churches. Well, sure enough, when you look at Revelation 2 and 3, you find seven churches. The seven uh, seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls are all found in Revelation. And it's always exactly seven. There's the two witnesses. There's 144,000 who were sealed out of every tribe of the nation of Israel. Uh, that's a number that has for sure a symbolic meaning, but there's no reason to think that it's not a literal number. That's in Revelation 7. In Revelation 14, you have the 144,000 virgins who are uh, the firstfruits to the Lamb from the church. Again, a very symbolic number, a significant number, and yet that there's no reason to say that number is not a real number. The two witnesses, uh, always these are real numbers. So it's just, can you find a number in Revelation that should not be taken in a literal way? And again, I'm just not aware of any. And so I don't see any basis for saying that the 1,000 years there is anything other than a literal number. And yes, it absolutely has a tremendous spiritual significance. 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is a number of perfection in the scriptures. So it's the perfections of perfections of perfections to say a 1,000. Very significant. But you can't say because of that that it is, it is therefore not a 
literal number. And of course, if it is a literal number, then that blows up the whole amillennial theory right there because Christ has already been, it's been almost 2,000 years now since Christ was crucified. So um, again, you, you can't just make things up in your interpretation. You have to have a strong biblical basis for your interpretation. And there simply is no basis for thinking here that that 1,000 years is anything other than a literal time frame. So I wanted to insert a word here. Uh, and this is after I've edited the podcast and uh, been working on it to get it ready for publication because I've realized some people could say, well, what about the numbers related to the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22? What about the size of the city? Because it says it's 12,000 stadia cubed, which is about almost 1,400 miles. Is that a literal number? Because obviously you put a big cube of solid gold on that size on the earth, it just, just wouldn't work. Well, that's true. Those numbers may not be literal. Maybe those numbers are figurative. And in fact, the whole situation with the New Jerusalem is very difficult to understand, whether it's speaking there of something spiritual or whether it's a physical city. Um, we just don't understand that. But that's in the section of Revelation that is dealing with the new heaven and new earth. In other words, with the new creation. So when I say all the numbers in Revelation should be taken literally, I need to clarify that's in the section of Revelation that is dealing with this present creation with which we are familiar, from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 20. Those numbers are all literal numbers that have a spiritual significance. When you get to the new heaven and the new earth uh, with the new Jerusalem, that's a little different. Then that situation we just don't understand yet. Uh, we'll, we'll only understand that, I think, when we really enter into the new Jerusalem. But in this present creation, the old creation, uh, the numbers in Revelation are all literal numbers with a spiritual significance. Now, the final point I want to make regarding Revelation 20 has to do with the abyss and what that is. And I have to say, this is really a crucial point because if there was any credibility left in the amillennial view of Revelation 20, this would just completely blow it to smithereens. Uh, so I really want to stress this and make this clear because it really seems that of all of Augustine's views in Revelation, this is the most wild one. And yet it is the one which more or less has been adopted by amillennialists ever since. So to begin with, let's listen to what Augustine says about the abyss. And this is from an article uh, that I was reading on his views, and I'll, I'll link to this in the program notes. The author says, as far as the confinement is concerned, the abyss, in Augustine's view, quote, symbolizes the innumerable multitude of the impious, in whose hearts there is a great depth of malignity against the church of God, end quote. So that's Augustine's view. The abyss is this collection of human hearts, and Satan has been bound with his, in these human hearts of the uh, impious who uh, are in rebellion against God. That's his view about the abyss. And again, amillennialists, ever since that, they have to take some kind of view like this because it's clear in the present age, Satan is not bound according to what you read in Revelation 20. He is still running loose on the earth, James tells us. He uh, goes about seeking someone whom he, whom he may devour. Uh, Paul tells us he, uh, the God of this age has blinded the thoughts of the unbelievers. So he's very active, we know, and in, in, you read in, in Acts, the, the work of the demons to try to oppose the preaching of the gospel. Uh, so for sure, 
they're not bound in a literal sense that you see in Revelation 20. So they have to say it's a spiritual kind of binding. Well, is there any basis in the New Testament for that view that what Revelation is talking about is not a literal binding, that it's a spiritual binding only? And fortunately, the New Testament does not leave us without an explanation of that. And I sent out an article recently on this, and it was called Why the Demons Are Not Amillennial. And I would strongly encourage you to read that article, that note that I sent out. And of course, I'll link to that. Uh, Because as I say, this I feel is quite a crucial point. And it just completely demolishes this view that uh, what's spoken of here is a spiritual and not a literal binding. So to understand this, you have to look at the incident recorded in the Gospels, both in Matthew and in Luke, where Jesus casts out the legion of demons. And you have to compare these two. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus crosses the sea with his disciples and he comes to the region of the Gadarenes. And uh, Matthew chapter 8, 28, uh, when he came to the, to the other side into the region of the Gadarenes, two possessed by demons met him as they were coming out of the tomb so exceedingly fierce that no one was able to pass by. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So these demons here, who have possessed this man, are saying, there's a time coming when they are going to be tormented. There's a time in the future when they are going to be tormented. And they're urging Jesus not to torment them yet. Well, now compare that with what we read about the same story in the Gospel of Luke. This is, chapter, this is Luke chapter 8, verse 28, uh, the same story. This man who's demon-possessed, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beseech you, do not torment me. Okay, so this story also records how they were worried about being tormented by Jesus. But listen to what verse 31 says. This is Luke chapter 8, 31. And they entreated him not to order them to depart into the abyss. Let me read that verse again. They entreated him not to order them to depart into the abyss. In Matthew, they said, don't torment us before the time. In Luke, they say, don't order us to depart into the abyss. So when you put those together, what do you see? You see the demons know for sure that a time is coming when they will be cast into the abyss. And that proves beyond any question that the abyss that's spoken of in Revelation must be a real, literal abyss, not this figurative nonsense that the amillennialists talk about. Because the demons know for sure that they're going into the abyss. And the only time something like that's recorded in Scripture is when Satan is bound and cast into the abyss in Revelation 20. And no doubt when Satan goes in, all his demons, all his evil hosts goes in there there with him at the same time. And so that really proves, beyond any question, if you allow the scripture to interpret the scripture, for sure the abyss that's spoken of in Revelation 20 is a real, literal abyss, and there's a day coming when Satan and his evil hosts are going to be cast into it after they've been bound up. Praise the Lord for that. So no, there's no question. It is not speaking here of something of a spiritual binding. It's a real, literal binding that's going to take place in the future. And again, that fully proves that the amillennial teaching 
quite frankly, is a bunch of absolute nonsense. There's no basis in the scripture. They make it up out of whole cloth based on, to a large extent, pagan Greek philosophy, not based upon the scripture. And no Christian should ever be uh, fooled into believing this kind of evil teaching. We should take the scripture for what it says at face value. And we, we can strongly believe the promise that the Lord is showing us here. A day is coming when he is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. And the nation of Israel is going to reign over the whole earth. Uh, the believers also will be reigning. Praise the Lord. We have that hope for faithful. We'll be reigning with Christ for that 1,000 year period. Praise the Lord for that. So that's going to be uh, enough for this program. And that's going to conclude this series on the millennium uh, and uh, our consideration of the false teaching of amillennialism and just how evil this teaching really is. And uh, I hope it's been profitable for you. It certainly has been for me, even though it has not been an easy uh, topic to get to get into, I'm sure, either to, to study or to listen to. But uh, I think there's a real profit in this because hopefully it will teach us something about how to come to the scripture and how to trust the scripture as we should. So we just commit uh, these messages to the Lord. Uh, may he bless them and anoint them for his sake uh, to protect his children and to enable us to go on with him and to go on with his word in a healthy way in the coming days for his sake and his glory. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.